The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. You have your Bibles this morning? I hope you do. We're going to look at them. We do, as Cade mentioned earlier, at the close of the message here, we have a great opportunity this morning, exciting thing in the life of our church as we install and appoint a, uh, Eric Wellborn uh, right here as an elder. And so we'll do that after the message And Philippians 1, uh, 1 and 2 really fit into that. And so you'll see that in just a minute. But elders are a, a gift from the Lord to the church to care for us. We all need the shepherding care, the oversight in which elders bring to the body of believers. Amen. Amen. And so when God raises up a a, a brother to do this and to serve in this capacity, it is a great reason for celebration amongst God's people. So uh, we have a we have a great opportunity to do that. But turn in your copy of God's word now to Philippians one, verse one. Philippians, you'll find it in the New Testament. If you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible's landscape, as you uh, get there to your New Testament, you'll find the Gospels and then Acts. And then after Acts, there's this portion of the scripture called the Epistles, which is just a fancy word for letters, many of them that were written by this guy, the Apostle Paul. And so you'll get into Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then hit the brakes at... Philippians. And that's where we're going to be here as we begin this new series uh, written by the Apostle Paul to this uh, young church that he had planted there in that city of Philippi, which uh, in those days was in a region called Macedonia. Um, In our day, it's northern Greece. And I would love to go visit it. Anybody want, like, next week, should we try to find a a cruise or something and take a Mediterranean cruise and go tour these uh, places? Who's with me? Yeah, everybody? Who's paying? That's right. That's right. We could go and visit it. But what you'll want to do is you'll want to keep a bookmark here uh, because we're going to be in it for the next several months. We're going to be going uh, through it verse by verse, passage by passage, all the way up to Easter. And uh, it's going to be a great study for us. And so I'm sure that you uh, are like me in, in some ways, hopefully not in every way, but you're like me in that throughout the onslaught of chaos and change that 2020 has been, that you've looked to the word of God for answers. Have you, church? I pray that you have. I pray that uh, as uh, things have changed and things have shifted and things have remained uncertain, that you have come to the scriptures seeking hope and help. That you've come to the scriptures seeking a lens in which to view all the things happening around us. That as you have sought a solid footing for your feet, a place in which to stand and to move forward, that you've looked to the scriptures. And there you have found something more sure, something eternal something durable, something that can withstand the chaos and isn't of itself unchanging because the one who wrote it is unchanging. And I'll tell you what, one of the places that I've gone to over and over again throughout this uh, uh, year, throughout 2020, is the book of Philippians. It is short but profound. There are so many verses in this, uh, in this b- small book of the Bible that are uh, considered those life verses, right? Sometimes they're uh, quoted out of context. You know, how many football players this season have quoted uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Uh, the, and, and many others in, uh, throughout the book. There are these themes within it of joy and peace and purpose and contentment. These fruits that we as Christians need if we are going to endure in this life as we wait for Christ. 
Paul tells the Roman church there in Romans 5, uh, 3, he says, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. If 2020 has caused any sort of suffering in your life, you can know that it is producing an endurance, a durability that you need to make it yet another day. The Apostle Paul knew this. He was writing this letter here from, uh, to the Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome. Imprisoned for uh, preaching the gospel. Imprisoned because he was shaking up whole cities, whole communities with this life-transforming message of the gospel. This message of be reconciled to God. And they sought to shut him up and so they put him in jail. But not even prison could quiet this man as he continued to write letters and as the jailers and others began to uh, be his audience for the proclamation of the gospel. And so he writes back to this church in Philippi, these believers that through uh, Epaphroditus had brought him a gift to sustain him while he was in prison. And now he's sending this letter back with them. And he writes this as a commentator says, or here's the way that we should view this. In the commentary Christ-centered exposition, he says, Paul uses this occasion to encourage the believers to persevere together with joy in spite of opposition. He says, it's not just an epistle of joy. It's about fearlessly advancing the gospel with joy, working together in hardship, end quote. And so our aim as we work our way through Philippians, and I hope you will join us Sunday after Sunday for the next several months. If you're a guest with us today, there's no greater time than to uh, just plug in as we begin this book and continue our way through it. But our aim in this book is then to produce in us a more durable faith in Christ that can withstand whatever 2020 has left for us and whatever 2021 will bring for us. And so what is behind the joy, the peace, the contentment that is... Uh, that is is flavoring Philippians. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so the center of this book is is about Christ's example. And Paul will write about his own example and the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus and what he even commends them for to telling them uh, to imitate Christ. But not only is this what is behind them and compelling them forward, what is also out front of the Philippians is Christ himself. He is their aim. He is their pursuit. He is the one to whom they are looking, as we will see in chapter 3. But for this morning, we're just going to take the first two verses, the introduction of Philippians, and they have something to teach us about a durable identity. A durable identity that is unshakable. And the application is really here for all of us, but there will be a special application for our brother Eric as he begins his appointment as an elder. And so look with me now in the Bible. I've given you a lot of opening, but let's look at these verses, and I want to read them for us. Here they are. Say this, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word for God's people. Now, if you're taking notes, write this down for me, will you? Write this down. You'll find it on the screen here. Write this down. A durable identity is formed by the grace of Christ. A durable identity is formed by the grace of Christ. Paul knew this. Timothy knew it. They are writing to these believers now so that they would know it as well. As I said, this uh, book is a a letter, right? And we have uh, a, a way that we write letters here in America, don't we? 
If you're in school, or maybe you remember back from school, but there's a whole section, you know, my son just went through it in early elementary, of how to write a letter. We have a form, we introduce who the recipients first, and then you have the body of the letter, and then we wait to the very end to reveal who wrote the letter, right? It's actually not very smart because you have to read that. Who did I get this letter from? You have to wait till the end. Well, in the, the days that Paul's writing, they're really smart because they introduce the sender right away. Paul and Timothy are the uh, senders and the church at Philippi, the saints there, specifically the overseers and deacons are the recipients of this letter. And so in these two verses, we have four identities or four titles uh, that are revealed to us, that of slaves, saints, overseers, and deacons. Three times in these two verses, Christ is mentioned. We are slaves of Christ, saints in Christ, and grace and peace come from Christ. And then there are these two attributes in the second verse, that grace and peace. Grace being the undeserved favor that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ has shown us. And aren't we recipients of an undeserved favor, church? Who are we? that he would send us and save us. And this peace that we define here as a calm confidence, calm confidence in Christ Jesus. All these are held together by Christ. These are what hold these titles together is the grace and peace that has been shown us in Christ Jesus. And that's why we say the nail the way that we do, that a durable identity is formed by the grace of God. And so when we talk about our identity, we're talking about who we are. Who we are, and that is given to us by grace. And then our identity is also not only who we are, but flowing out of that is what we do because of who we are. And here's the thing, church, even what we do is all by the grace of God. All by his enabling grace, by the Spirit. And Paul gets this, and it's why he writes the letter the way he does. It's why it's not just a casual letter where he's like, hey, it's Paul and Timothy here, what's up, Phil Pye? You know, it's saturated with Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a causing us to behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even as we uh, begin to take these verses apart and look at these durable identities, we must view it through the lens that is saturated with Jesus Christ. And so here's our first point as we look at this durable identity and what it causes us to do. We are to first act like slaves. To act like slaves. And even as I say that, I can see the look of shock on some of your faces. It causes us to cringe as we even think of that term, and rightly so. Rightly, rightly so. The term slaves brings to mind the brutal cruelty and the horrific oppression of, a, of Western colonialism, right? It, it is shocking. It's why in your Bible it may even say servants or bond servants or bond slaves because translators try to soften the blow when we see this, uh, this word, the, the Greek word doulos, which is rightly translated as slave. But in order to kind of soften the blow a bit, they translate it as such. And we think of slavery through the history of Western colonialism, that, which has contributed to the, the, uh, the, the racial hatred that still exists today in our nation and really all across the globe. And so let me be clear here as we just think about that for a second. We're going to come to a, the biblical perspective and why Paul and Timothy would write to that in just a moment. But let me just be clear when we think about American slavery and, uh, and what has existed, even as racial tension. This isn't really new if you're part of our church, but let me just be clear as we're uh, beginning here. The history of slavery in our country is an abomination. Okay? It's a past we must lament. There's no excuse. There's no justification biblically, economically, or anything else. It's a past that we must lament. 
And presently then, for we who are Christians, we must examine our own hearts for any uh, hatred or racism towards any person that may exist there. Bring it to the Lord and repent of it. Let me just be clear about this. The way forward is and always has been gospel reconciliation. Gospel reconciliation. Apart from this, there will always be enmity between human beings. But God has provided the way in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the solution. And now it will take humility and it will take time. A long history like this isn't just gone over in a, in, in a night, in a week, or even a year. But as we look to Christ, we have hope that there is a way forward and it starts with us. And so even as we think of this, let's, uh, let's, let's just be clear about that. But then let's come to what the Bible talks about. Because we have to deal with the scriptures, right? We don't just get to look over this verse and be like, well, that's kind of uncomfortable. Let's just not talk about it, right? But well, here's the thing, church, is we have to read our Bibles, not through our American identity, but through our Christian identity. Through who we are in Christ Jesus. And we can't allow the stains of our culture to bleed onto the pages of our Bible. Actually, we need to let the light of Christ shine onto the stains of the culture so we can begin to view what is happening around us through the Bible and not the other way around. And so the concept of slavery then, particularly of uh, 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 this identity as believers, as slaves of Jesus, is prominent in our New Testament. We can't, we can't get around it. It is a concept that is, is, uh, is, is important for us to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We embrace this. We embrace our identity as a slave every time we call Christ our Lord, our master, the king of kings, what we've just sung about and, and identified him as. We are embracing this every time. It's part and, part and parcel of the gospel of our repenting and turning from our sin and believing in Christ and submitting to his way as best. And so we embrace this. We believe this. We see these themes all across the scriptures as we are owned by Christ. As 1 Corinthians 6 and in chapter 7 says, we have been bought with a price. As Paul would write to Titus in Titus chapter 2 and say that we are a people of Christ's own possession. We are owned and possessed. And, and knowing this, this, this identity here, Paul and Timothy embrace it with pride. They introduce themselves with the letter. And you can bet that the church in Philippi, they, they were shocked as well, but they knew exactly what they were referring to. That here were two men who had been bought by Christ who, had been, uh, who are slaves of his. And so let me just ask the question, why would they do this? Why would Paul and Timothy embrace this with pride? Why would they do this? Because of who the master is. Because even as they lowered themselves and identified them as slaves, they put them, uh, elevated Christ Jesus as the benevolent master. And now there is so much to this and so much to even continue to go in depth in. And we just don't have the time to go into it this morning. But I would commend to you this super helpful book entitled Slave by John MacArthur. Looks at all the scripture of this and it is, it is a phenomenal book. I would encourage you to get it and to read it. But I want to read just a few excerpts this morning for us so you can begin to get what, it, what, is, uh, what, what we're after here. And so hear this uh, from the book. It says, To be a slave of Jesus Christ is the greatest benediction imaginable. Not only is he a kind and gracious Lord, but he is also the God of the universe. His character is perfect. His love is infinite. His power matchless. His wisdom unsearchable. And his goodness beyond compare. 
It is no wonder then that our relationship to him as our master brings us great benefit and honor. In Roman times, one's experience was, as a slave was almost entirely dependent upon the nature of one's master. The slave of a good, benevolent master could expect to be well cared for, enjoying a secure and peaceful life. Really a description of what we enjoy uh, as uh, Christ followers. He goes on to say this, uh, uh, but if it was considered an honor to be a slave of one of the Caesars or a king in those days, it is infinitely more to be uh, the slave of Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is any wonder that the New Testament writers eagerly attributed the title slave of Christ to themselves and others. It was not only an affirmation of their complete submission to the master, it was also a declaration of the privileged position every Christian enjoys by being associated with the Lord. No affiliation could be greater than that. As slaves, believers have no intrinsic glory in themselves, but as members of the Lord's household, we are distinguished simply by our connection to Him. To be His doulos is an inc incomparable honor. Thus, the Apostle Paul can instruct his readers that if they wish to boast, they should boast only in the Lord. What a joy and privilege it is to be a slave of the eternal king. Forever we will sing his praises, basking in the radiance of his glory and worshiping him with hearts full of reverence and love. His name is above any other, and his name will be written on our foreheads for all eternity. Along with the saints of every age, we will never cease to marvel at the fact that, in spite of our own faults and frailties, the Lord chose us to be his own. There is no greater honor to be in the company of the king. End quote. Isn't our God such a good God? And when we think of the glorious uh, nature of who our God is and that he would call us to himself, this is, a, is an identity to be embraced with great joy. And it's really with this understanding of who we are in Christ then and who, who we are as, uh, as he is our master and our king that then leads us to live in a certain way, that leads us to live for the glory of Christ, advancing his causes, announcing his message as he would appoint us to do. And so then how are we to act as a slave? What does God require of us? Uh, and he requires of us faithfulness. And he requires uh, of those who are owned to walk with faith. A faith that is demonstrated by this acronym, faith. You maybe have heard me use this before because it, is, it is, is so helpful for us to think and how we are to walk with faith. And the first is this. If you're thinking of this acronym, you can write this down. is to be found faithful. As a slave of Christ Jesus, we are to be found faithful, those that are already in, committed with a proven loyalty. See, we are faithful because Christ has been faithful to us and has enabled us to walk with him. We also require the slaves to be available, be faithful and available. Those people that are always ready at his beck and call, ready to advance his purposes without excuse, without hesitation. We are all in with even margin for more. We are ready. We are available. We are eager to be about his work. Why? Because Christ has made himself available to us, interceding for us. He is always accessible as our chief shepherd, and we too then are available as we follow him. What does it look like to act like a slave? Is to be faithful, to be available, and to be a man or a woman of integrity. A man or woman of integrity with a demonstrated trustworthiness and a pursuit of excellence. To be blameless and above reproach. To have a consistent character no matter who you are with and where you are. Why do this? Because Christ himself is righteous. 
because Christ himself is blameless and perfect in all that he said and all that he did and all that he thought. And as we seek to follow him, we seek to also be men and women of integrity. We also seek to then be teachable. To be teachable means that you are eager for input, always learning, forever a lifelong learner, growing in our understanding and application of the word of God. Why are we teachable people? Because we know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to him, but nobody comes to the Father but through Christ. And we want to grow in the truth. We want to grow in our understanding, and so we are forever teachable. And finally, we are humble, a people full of humility. You get the acronym there, faithful, available, integrity, teachable, and humble. We are people who are gentle and lowly, who don't think too highly of ourselves. We're not seeking our own glory, our own recognition, our own advancement in things, but simply that of Jesus Christ. See, Christ is the perfect example of this, right? As he left heaven, so we'll get into Philippians 2, and he came as a man living the perfect life, the humble life among us. And so let me ask you this, church. Do these things define you? Do these characteristics uh, define you as a follower, as a slave of Christ Jesus? As as the pursuit of your life, one that demonstrates a submission to the master where the interests in your life are tied up with the interests of your master. You are advancing his cause, his message, all for his glory. Are you a man, a woman, worthy to be imitated in these things as you embrace this gracious identity that Christ has given us? See, this is a durable identity formed by the grace of Christ who has bought us. But there's a second durable identity that comes out in this verse. We're told to abide like a saint. Abide like a saint. See, if Paul and Timothy were the senders, it is the saints or the holy ones, the set-apart ones in Christ Jesus that were at Philippi, particularly the overseers and deacons who were to receive this letter. And I'm afraid that like slave, there's some explanation needed here as we think about saints, right? We think about what is a a saint, because you hear that and you kind of cringe, right? You wonder, like, who's he writing to? You know, some traditions where saints is wrongly seen, and yes, I say wrongly seen or viewed as those extraordinary Christians, right? It's like the professionals, the, the big leaguers, right? The ones who've made it, the ones who have that, the, the, the churches named after them, and the ones who, you know, have done these incredible things. Some traditions, they wrongly see saints as those who've performed two miracles, right? And then they achieve sainthood. Let me just be clear about something and let me just be very blunt. You will not find that anywhere in the scriptures. You won't find that, that, that view anywhere in your Bibles. It is a man-made tradition. See, saint is an identity or a title for every believer in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, are you saved? Have you repented of your sin and believed in Christ? Yeah, amen, amen. That's great. We love feedback here. Yeah, amen. Count me in. Then let me tell you this morning, church, you are a saint, a holy, set-apart one, and not based in anything that you have done. It's not because you have achieved some sort of spiritual status and you have done great things for the Lord. Our holiness, our sainthood is wrapped up and solely because of what Christ has done. 
So we are saints. It is so important here to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Our sainthood is, is wrapped up in him and him justifying us, of, of him standing in our place, of him bearing the penalty for our sin, for doing what we could not do and taking the wrath of the Father that we were supposed to take, of him in the legal sense, in a courtroom before the Lord of God because of what Christ is declaring us righteous making us holy, setting us apart, enabling us then to live a God-honoring, spirit-filled life in the Father. But not only in a legal sense, but also in a familial sense. God adopted us into his family because of what Christ has done, calling us his sons and daughters of, of being a brother or sister in Christ, bringing us into the family, making us co-heirs of all the eternal inheritance coming to Christ Jesus. This is, we, are, we are saints, church. Do you believe this? Are you, have you repented of your sin? Are you in Christ this morning, abiding in this durable identity that cannot be taken away? An identity that cannot be shaken. Paul gets this. I think the people at Philippi gets it. That's why he calls them. He says, hey, saints, right? To all the saints, every single person in that church that had placed their faith in Christ in this city. You know, see, these were just some ordinary folks. They were just ordinary folks in this church, many of them former military, many of them who were veterans of the Roman forces. The city of Philippi, as uh, you should know, was the site of a major battle in the days of, of Caesar Augustus. Many years before this letter was written, and, and as it, uh, in that defeat, it became a Roman colony. And so all of its citizens then uh, began the identity as a Roman citizen and enjoyed all the benefits of being uh, known as a Roman city, uh, citizen in this colony. It was on a, a strategic location. Uh, on a major highway that connected all of these uh, countries there. There was a major trading route that was near a river and, and, uh, and not far off of the city were these gold mines that were then traded and gone back and forth. And, and, and actually, as you think about it, it's a lot like New Braunfels, isn't it? As we think of the strategic location of I-35 here, a major trading route, a major uh, vein in our country, right? I mean, it goes basically from across our continent, right? From Canada to Mexico, I-35 goes on. When I go home to Wisconsin, I can basically get on I-35 and just head straight on north all the way till morning until I get too tired. And then when I begin to lose cell phone reception, I turn right and about to make it my way home. But the city is in many ways like New Braunfels, right? On a strategic highway, rivers here. Maybe there's some gold mines. I don't know anybody found some gold mines around there's, there's rumors of it, right? Rumors of the old explorers and things. But here at Philippi was one of the first churches planted by Paul in his second missionary journey. You should go and read about it this afternoon or this week in Acts 16. And you will see this church that was planted in the types of just ordinary people that God saved uh, to, to start this church. And so guess what? Guess what type of people believe become a part of this like core team to plant this church? It's so interesting. I'll just give you an overview. First, there's one of the first converts is a woman named Lydia. She's a wealthy woman, likely from Asia, and she comes to faith in Christ and then her family does. And then we're, there's just some ladies mentioned, some other women that come to faith in Christ. Maybe it's uh, Yodia and Syntyche, who we'll uh, read about in, in chapter 4. And then there's this unnamed slave girl 
who, uh, who comes to radical transformation in Jesus Christ, and, and, and she becomes a part of this core team. And for this, uh, Paul and Silas then are thrown in, in jail there, and as they are in the middle of the night singing these hymns, this earthquake comes, and the jailer, like fearing for his life, he comes to Paul and Silas, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he tells him to believe. And so now this jailer and his family are added to this church, and then at the end of the chapter, you have these, some new brothers. I don't know, maybe Clement. We're about him in chapter 4 as well. There's just a, an assortment of people. These he refers to as saints, just ordinary folks with an extraordinary identity, all brought together because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't this the same for us, Redemption? We're just some ordinary folks, right? We're a unique assortment of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of things behind us. But each of us as believers in Christ, each of us as a part of this church, we are owned by Christ and set apart in Christ. And it's here, uh, beloved, it's here that we must constantly abide. It's in this identity that we must constantly abide, that we have been set apart for Christ, remembering day in and day out where we came from, who we once were, things that no longer defined us, things that we are no longer enslaved to do, but remembering where we came from and then what Christ has done to save us. Remembering the lengths that Christ went to to die on our behalf and to be risen again and what he did that we might be saved in the specific way that he went about saving you in your life, putting that person in your life, opening your mind to see the scriptures, uh, uh, using unique circumstances, the, the special way that God brought to your eyes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We remember that. We bask in it. We abide in where we came from, what Christ did, and who we are now because of what Christ did the hope that we have, the purpose that we have, his unchanging character as we are growing and growing. And this keeps us going and going, pressing on in Christ, durable to withstand whatever comes in our life, whatever changes may happen, whatever changes, identities may happen in the workplace, in your family. But we are able to withstand all of these, desiring to grow and mature in our faith, in our abiding in Christ until the end. And we specifically then grow. And here's our final point in aspiring to lead. We're to act like a slave. We're to abide as saints. And we are to aspire then uh, to lead. And here's really this. Paul addresses all the saints. But he specifically mentions here in verse 1 there at the very end. These overseers and deacons. Though they're left unnamed, they had been appointed by either Paul or someone to lead and serve his church. These two offices of overseers or elders and pastor and deacons that God had designed to lead and serve his church. And so as he refers to overseers, here's, you know this in our church, but it's overseers, elders, elders, pastors. It's really one office with three different roles. One office with three, different, uh, with three different responsibilities. You go to 1 Peter 5, you would see all three of these things as Peter uh, addresses the elders there, charging them to shepherd, which is pastor, and uh, to oversee the flock of God that he's given. You see all of these in that same, uh, in that same uh, paragraph, that same passage of Scripture. Now, if you want more teaching on this, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but I'll just put this plug here. There's little booklets called Biblical Eldership. We have them at our connection table. We would love for one of those to go in your hands if this is new concept for you. 
But overseers here, this is the Greek word episkopos, which is often translated as bishop. And you know how some traditions, they, uh, they separate these. Uh, you have like bishops and elders and pastors and all that. But really the New Testament would use them to define one office with many different roles. And so this idea of overseer is one of a steward, a caretaker, caretaker of the church of God. Redemption, does this church belong to me? Absolutely not. Thank you for saying that. It almost makes me cringe even to like, ask that question. So it does not. Who does redemption belong to? It belongs to Christ. Yeah, he is the head. He is the head of this church, and he appoints elders or overseers, pastors, to steward and caretake of his body for him. If you want to, to go ahead and turn to Acts 20 just for a bit, or you can listen to me as I read it. Acts 20, verse 28 is so helpful for us as we think about this idea of overseer. It says this, this is Paul speaking to the elders there in, uh, in that church in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28, and he says, uh, he charges them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, this is such an instructive verse for us. The charge to overseers then is to first and primarily care for themselves, to pay careful attention to our own holiness, to watch out how we are living our own life, knowing that it has an influence on others, that we should uh, be careful to not disqualify ourselves, but to be leading a holy and exemplary life for the glory of God. That's the primary attention. But the elders, overseers are also to pay careful attention to all the flock, to the members, those that have committed to the church. And, and, and this brings to mind Hebrews 13. And the fact that elders, overseers give a, an account to the Lord for those in the flock. So we must pay careful attention to be available, to be aware of what's going on, to be accessible, to be among the flock, paying attention for their caretaking in which, as the verse goes on, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, elders, deacons, ultimately are, uh, are appointed by God himself, set apart by the Holy Spirit. The man, yes, aspires, as 1 Timothy 3, uh, to it. Elders, other elders appoint uh, these brothers to the office, and a church affirms their role in this. But it ultimately comes from the Lord himself, by the Holy Spirit, to care for his church, which he bought with a great price, at the price of his own blood. See, God has uh, paid a great price to purchase his people, hasn't he? his own life. And it has a great value to the Lord. And things that we value the most, we don't just like stuff it in our back pocket to be sit on and squashed, do we? No, we hold it as a precious treasure. We pay careful attention. We know where it is all the time. And such is the case with the church of God in whom he makes elders, overseers to watch out for. And so elders, they serve the church by leading, by leading in the doctrine, the direction, the discipleship, and the discipline of God's people. 
overseeing the teaching of the church and the spiritual discipleship of the church and uh, keeping uh, us in, in line as members would go out of line or walk into sin of keeping us on the straight and narrow and also in the direction making sure that we aren't drifting from our mission but we are constantly advancing the gospel and so elders serve the church by leading whereas deacons then the other office here that that he calls out is they lead then by serving word here deacon diakonos could literally be translated servant they are to serve the physical needs of god's people you see these the prototypes for deacons in, in Acts chapter 6. As the apostles there, um, there's great needs in the church, and the apostles say, hey, we have to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they then also they, they raise up these men to serve the physical needs of the church. And Romans 16, uh, Phoebe is uh, commended for her role and her service as a deacon to the church there. The primary difference between these two offices, as you would see amidst the character qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, is that overseers are uh, apt and called and able to teach. But let me just tell you, church, both are needed and necessary for a healthy, vibrant, growing church. Both of these offices in God's wisdom for a church. And so just so you know, as, uh, um, as we as elders, as we head into 2021, we have, a, we have three big directional goals for our year. I'll just put these out here for you because I think you care about them and you can pray with them for us. But we have three big directional goals as it kind of relates to the ongoing care and all that stuff. But here's three things. Is we want to strengthen the health and leadership of, of our current plurality. And so we're going to seek to do that to make sure that we are spiritually healthy and clicking on all cylinders and growing in our consensus and our chemistry together in that. The second big directional thing that we have is, uh, you members got the elder update this last week, is uh, we are going to develop and deploy then Ben Dowdy as a church planter. Uh, we have this opportunity in this next year to raise up this man and his wife and to send them out and plant a church. And this is a great opportunity and a great responsibility for us as a church. And so we're going to devote time and margin to developing and deploying this man as a church planter. But then our third and our final one, and it fits right here, is we've uh, now we're in the life of our church as we are ready to de- develop and deploy deacons here at our church as well. And so we're going to begin a process of assessing and training and raising up these men and women to serve as deacons in our church who will lead us by serving. And we're really excited for this. You know, as we begin to talk about it and what this looks like, this is the next big step in our young church as elders have been raised up and now deacons themselves are, uh, will be raised up and, and deployed, Lord willing, here in this next year. But here's the thing. Whether or not you occupy one of these offices, all of us have been given uh, uh, influence. All of us should be aspiring to grow in our faith. All of us should be aspiring to grow in whom we lead and how we influence with a Christ-like sacrificial influence by leading and serving and giving our lives away for the gospel. See, we influence others. We aspire to lead and influence others sacrificially as we grow in character. Those traits that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 of being above reproach and uh, faithful to our spouse and not addicted to wine and temperate and not quarreling or antagonistic to be prudent and respectable where we're free from the love of money and hospitable and managing our household well. So we are to aspire to lead and to influence in these things with however big, whether we have an office or not. But we influence others as we not only grow in our character, but also in our chemistry or our unity. 
as we together grow uh, seeking understanding amongst the uh, people of God and we grow in our forgiveness and our love shown to one another. We lead and influence those that uh, 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 witness our lives around us. And so we influence. We influence this in our, in our character and our chemistry, but also in our competency as we use our skills for the glory of God, as we use the time, talent, and treasure that God has given us to impact others with the gifts he has given us as well. And so we aspire to lead. We aspire to serve. We aspire to spend and be spent for the glory of God, all by the grace and peace that has been given us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, do we, just because we, we, we may never have a title or an office, we may never occupy the office of overseer and deacon, but if you're a Christian today, you are a slave and a saint, and that will never change. It can never be taken away. And when we get this right, we are a durable influencer. We have a durable identity when we understand that where, we, uh, where uh, our identity cannot be shaken, then come what may, whatever identity we have in the family, in the workplace, in the church, wherever, it does not matter because these things are unchanging because Christ is unchanging. And so let us grow, let us, let us grow in these things as a body of believers together. But even as we've said, there are some special applications here for our brother Eric. And so I want, I, I just have a, I want to close this message now with a specific charge to our brother here, our brother Eric Wellborn, as we are about to install and lay hands on him. Brother Eric, act like a slave. Act like a slave. These, uh, this, uh, this appointment, as I said, is not from me. It's not from Cade and I. It's not from this church even. It's from the Lord. He's your master. He is your, he is your king. Act like a slave. You are his servant to do his bidding. You, you're, you, are, you are to be a man who is, all, is devoted entirely to advancing his cause of living a life of faithfulness, of availability, a life of integrity and teachability and humility, all for his glory. A life that exemplifies that you are submitted to the master, that you are an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And church, let me just tell you, throughout this year-long process that we've been in with uh, Eric, is that he has repeatedly demonstrated these characteristics time and time and time again. We would not be laying hands on him today if he was not. This isn't a popularity contest or just because we really like him or we think he's a handsome dude. It's not because Eric is the biggest giver in our church. It's not because he has the most uh, 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 margin in his life or he's the most skilled among us. But it's because he gets the fact that he is a slave of Christ Jesus and has wholly devoted himself to this. He is a man worthy to be imitated in these things. Eric, secondly, abide like a saint. Abide like a saint. Just as we said, remember these things. You need to remember where you came from, who you once were apart from Christ. Let that keep you humble before the Lord. It's not what you boast in, remembering what Christ did to save you, that it was your sin that put him on the cross. He died willingly in your place. Remember that, abide like that, that he went the lengths to save you, to set you apart and to make you his son, to make you a saint. And now remember who you are now in Christ, who you are and the, the inheritance that he has given you, the traits that he has given you, the, the, the infinite worth 
that you now have, not because of what you've done, but because of who Christ says you are. You're to abide like a saint. And as you remember these things, this is what keeps you going. This is what will enable you to be a durable elder in this church. This, this is the remembering these things will keep you from uh, getting caught up in the title. On the days when you begin to get a little puffed up and after people call you Pastor Eric for a, a while, it is easy to get puffed up and remembering who you are, that you are a set-apart one from Christ, will keep, will pop that balloon every single time. You also, on the days when you want to quit, when we have hard decisions to make, when we know that decisions that we make, there will be those that uh, will disagree, who will be disappointed. You need to remember that your identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. He is your master. He is the one whom you please in this office. It's not me. It's not Kate. It's not anybody in this room. It's not even your wife. You are a saint. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Abide there. Allow that to guide your leadership. And aspire to grow in these things, brother. Act like a slave. Abide as a saint. And aspire to lead. To lead well, brother. To lead sacrificially. To let your influence be for Christ and not yourself. You're not here to build followers of Eric. You're here to build followers of Jesus Christ. And to bring them along with you as you do this. you, You aspire to lead. And when you do this, when you lay down your life for the bride... Just as Christ did, when you lay down your life, when you give it all up, when you live a life of sacrificial influence, it is then and only then you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It is there that you will receive the unfading crown of glory that Peter talks about. There and only there will you lead well for however long God has you in this office. And we, church, we get the joy of walking alongside this brother in this. What a joy that uh, God would raise him up and, and uh, bring him to our church and he would join this plurality. And so what I want to do now is I want to actually call up uh, uh, Eric and, and Terry and uh, Cade as well. And we're going to lay hands on him.